Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. And it's good to worship God together. I think the last time I was here was uh, Duncan Ryan's induction service, which I think was probably 2019. Um, but I've been uh, many times over the years. Um, some of you will be remembering my dad, Roy Jennings, um, who was a member here for a number of years when the church met in the school. So I bring greetings from uh, Deeside Christian Fellowship Church and the elders there this morning, uh, as well as from my dad. And uh, we pray for you, and it's good to have fellowship in our Saviour. Before we turn uh, to God's word, um, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day when we can come together to bring our songs and prayers to you in worship. We pray that you would speak to us through your word clearly this morning. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our minds that we might see. Open our hearts that we might understand and open our hands and mouths that we might obey your word, we pray. Amen. Well, the weather's been so good the last few days, you could have imagined almost that you were in Crete. Crete may be on the amber list of holiday destinations in July 2021, but would probably have been on the red list in the mid-60s AD. You see, Cretans had a reputation, and that reputation was infil infiltrating the church. Paul quotes one of their own poets earlier in the book of Titus, chapter 1, verse 6. And this poet said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And Paul agreed with that poet. This required a sharp rebuke in the church. Faith and practice must go together. Titus then was in Crete and Paul was writing to him this letter before us today to encourage him and to instruct him as he sought to lead God's people. So if you have a Bible, could you turn to Paul's letter to Titus, which is towards the end of the New Testament, just after 1st and 2nd Timothy. And while you're doing that, it's worth saying that Titus, I think at least, Titus is a great letter, a great book of the New Testament it's just three chapters long. It'll easily fit on one side of A4. And the 46 verses can be read in virtually no time at all. And I would encourage you to read the latter in full, maybe when you get home this afternoon, and maybe a few more times during the week. It's immensely practical, but it's also really helpful in setting out why and how we can live for Jesus in our generation. Living as a Christian in 2021 it is hard, it's countercultural, and it's frequently costly. Have you noticed how the media never stops praising ungodliness 
and renouncing godliness. Did you notice how Matt Hancock was pilloried for breaking social distancing rules, but his affair with a married woman, both with three young children, goes largely uncommented on? Maybe for the young people, it's the temptation to cheat when exam questions are posted on Instagram. Maybe it's the pressure to conform to the world's thinking around gender, sexuality, start and end of life ethics. It's all big. But whatever you do, don't question the perceived wisdom. Don't raise your head above the parapet. That's what the world wants to tell us. And maybe you're only too aware of that cost today in your own life. Maybe you're living with it on a daily basis. It can easily get too much. And I wonder whether you're drawn to two competing strategies, either to withdraw into a holy huddle or to cave in to the pressure. Both of those strategies will seem attractive at some times in our lives. The worldview of most people in the UK in 2021 is not a Christian worldview. In the worldview of those around us, we've gone from being good guys to bad guys, and pressure to conform is huge. But that's the situation that the Cretan Christians were in. They had a large number of people around them who had a very different worldview, who celebrated laziness, gluttony, who celebrated the things that Christians should be putting to one side. While well, living in Crete in 65 AD would have been difficult. And Paul's letter to Titus helps us understand to stand for Christ when the heat is turned up to 11. To live the lives of those redeemed by Jesus. So as we come to God's word, I want us to look at this passage from Titus and see, first of all, two components of godly living. And secondly, two motivations for godly living. So two components and two motivations. First of all then, two components of godly living. Two components of godly living. Earlier we read the whole of chapter 2 together. And you'll maybe remember that the first 10 verses were filled full of ethical instructions that Titus was to give the church in Crete. In fact, if you look over the book of Titus as a whole, it's incredible how many ethical instructions there are. I quickly came up with a list of 50, but I'm pretty sure that if you go through this afternoon, you'll be able to find even more. Now, that's a huge number of ethical instructions for a book that can fit on one side of A4. But this was important. Paul was trying to convince the Cretan Christians 
that there were things that they needed to avoid as Christians or turn away from, as well as things that God people are to practice or turn towards. Look with me at verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2. We read, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. Well, the four at the start of verse 11 connects us back to the first part of the chapter and those ethical instructions. Verses 2 to 10 are achievable and are important because the grace of God has appeared. Something fundamental has changed in the Cretan Christians. The grace of God has always existed, but Paul's focus here is on its appearing in a massive new way, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has come and he's brought salvation for all people. All those mentioned in the previous nine verses and I wonder if this includes some of you. Older men, older women, younger men, younger women, and slaves. I'm not meaning children in that regard, but slaves, and by extension, those that are free. And I think you'll agree with me that that covers each of us here. This salvation has now come, and it's come for all people, not just the Jews, but also for the Gentiles, for men and women, for old and young, for slave and free. While there used to be distinctions, the good news of Jesus has brought these all to an end in Christ. You can't tell me this morning that this excludes you. Whether you're here in church or whether you're watching online, Jesus came to save. And that's really good news because I really need to be saved. You really need to be saved. The grace of God has been revealed and Jesus meets our greatest need, a need shared by the whole of humanity, the need to have, have our sin nature dealt with. Well, praise the Lord that the grace of God has appeared. Praise the Lord that he has brought salvation for all people. And praise the Lord if he's brought salvation to your own heart too. But verse 12 goes on to stress that the grace of God and its appearing doesn't just bring salvation, but it also trains us, both positively and negatively. It teaches us to renounce, or to say no to, or to turn our backs on certain things. 
On the other hand, the same grace teaches us positively to live by different standards and with a different worldview. The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ into our lives changes things. Verses 12 and 14 largely parallel each other in our passage. Have a look with them, at, uh, at them with me. The grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness. Jesus gave himself to us to redeem us from all lawlessness. The grace of God trains us to live godly lives in this present age. Jesus redeemed us to purify him for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. And the work that God has started in us, he will bring to completion. You might be a bit puzzled by that expression in verse 14 that Jesus redeemed us to purify for himself a people for his own possession. I haven't really got time to go into it in much detail, but it's worth pursuing if you want to have a look at that uh, when you go home. It's really verses 13 and 14. They have strong allusions to the exodus of the people of Israel from Egypt. There's so much in Exodus that helps us to understand God's plan of salvation for his people and how we are to live as God's redeemed people. The Israelites were brought out of Egypt by God's mighty hand to become his treasured possession, to live under his law, and to be a kingdom of priests, demonstrating to the nations the power and the wisdom of God. Paul is making this reference back to the Old Testament to see that the way God is working in the Cretan Christians is the same way that he's always worked and the same way that he continues to work in us too. I expect there are a number here this morning who have similar levels of interest and ability as me in gardening. Not much, to be honest. But I know how important the task is and I'm very grateful for my wife that she takes up the slack that I create. Our lives are a bit like gardens, or as, as my understanding is it, if it is. Things grow, don't they? But not always the plants that you want to grow. Sometimes we get weeds, sometimes seed blown, over the garden wall from next door. Sometimes the edges of the grass haven't been cut properly, so there's grass seeds in there as well. Some plants grow too vigorously and need to be trimmed. Sometimes there are empty patches where plants have died. And some gardens suffer from evasive species like Japanese, Japanese knotweed. And it doesn't take long for a garden to suffer from neglect so that it looks really out of control well it's the same with our lives as Christians there are things 
which are inconsistent with a profession of faith in Jesus. And these need to be rooted out. There are fruit of the Spirit which need to be cultivated and grown. They're more delicate. And we can easily get complacent with this, but Paul warns us against that attitude. This can take hard work because it needs constant attention. But it will bring long-term results. And I'm sure those of us, even that aren't gardeners, can appreciate uh, a well-tended garden. I wonder how you need to respond to God's word this morning. Do you need to come before him with a heart of confession? Recognizing the things in our lives that maybe should have been rooted out years ago. Maybe we've left them because the rooting up task seems too difficult. Maybe we thought that we were trying to do it on our own strength and not in the strength of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or perhaps your life has just been neglected for too long. The weeds have started to push up and they've never been dealt with. Or perhaps this morning you're in a place where you can see real progress in your life and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ by his spirit has made massive changes since you came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Give thanks for that. Praise him for that. Maybe your response this morning is one of thanksgiving and prayer for perseverance that we'll all keep going in this important task. But maybe also it's a task you've never even started. Maybe the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is not known to you this morning. Maybe you haven't been redeemed by the one who gave his life for the lost. Maybe you need to come to him for the first time in repentance and seek his forgiveness and seek the change in your life that only he can bring. Maybe, of course, it's both, actually. And maybe in many of us it is both confession and thanksgiving and prayer for others that their lives might be changed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Sin tempts us in many different ways and in many different stages of life. Titus 2 encourages us to help each other as we seek together to grow more like Christ. I wonder whether this is happening either formally or informally in the church here in Bankery. Are you sparing one another on to become more like Christ? Is that happening? Is that sharing of experience, sharing of experience and wisdom happening between generations? So firstly, this morning, we've seen the two critical components of godly living renouncing ungodliness and pursuing models lived, models of our lives based on the Saviour, both turning away from and turning towards. 
But the Christian life is positive. It's not just about turning away from selfishness. It's also about serving others. It's not just about not stealing. It's also about giving generously. It's the grace of God which saves us. And it's the grace of God which trains us in righteousness. But secondly, Paul helpfully directs us towards two motivations for godly living. Two motivations for godly living. And I don't know about you, but I sometimes need those motivations. Although empowered by the grace of God, Paul doesn't pretend that it's easy. Living a sacrificial life in the danger that Paul faced is never easy. And Paul gives us two important motivations for godly living in our passage. You maybe notice the first of these motivations as we were reading through the first 10 verses of chapter 2 together earlier. Three times in the first 10 verses, Paul uses the phrase that or so that to indicate a relationship between the way we live our lives and the reaction of those around us. If you look down and scan down to verse 5, it says that the word of God may not be reviled or maligned. Verse 8 says, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. And verse 10 says, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour. Or as the NIV puts it, to make the teachings about him attractive. Now each of these statements is double-sided. Some expressed negatively and some positively but all demonstrate how our lives can really impact on others evangelistically. This is maybe not the verse that immediately comes to your mind, which is why I'm quoting it. But 1 Corinthians 7, when Paul urges Christian wives to stay with their non-Christian husbands, if they are willing, not because it's easy, but because the witness of a Christian in a household can be a really powerful thing. Maybe that's you today, either as a husband or a wife of a non-Christian. Maybe it's you as a child in a non-Christian household. The witness of a godly life is a powerful thing. And Christianity in the 21st century may like to talk of evangelistic strategies, but I'm not ever sure I've heard holiness of life being at the core of that. It's not often that you hear the, the value of godly living espoused as a key element of these strategies. But the first motivation for godly living by Paul then is its evangelistic potential. We should never underemphasize this. We do need to live countercultural lives to make this impact for the kingdom. But it's not just at home, it's wherever God calls us to in our lives in the home, 
in the office, in the shop, in the neighborhood, at the school gate, at the Chamber of Commerce, in the Scottish Parliament or in Westminster, wherever God has put us, he's given us the opportunity to shine for him in this dark world. But the second motive, motivation for living a godly life is spelled out to us, to us in chapter 2 and verse 13. Chapter 2, verse 13 says, Waiting or eagerly waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Waiting and hoping are things we do now in anticipation of the future. They aren't things that we long for. They're actions on our part in anticipation. The future must impact us here and now. I really appreciated singing many of those hymns that we sung this morning and thinking about how they can impact our lives, the words of those hymns and the enthusiasm we give as we, as we see a picture of Jesus Christ seated on the throne and ruling. He has come and he will come again, but the manner of his coming will be very different. This passage this morning challenges us as to whether we are really living in the light of Jesus coming again in glory. This passage tells us to lift up our eyes to the coming King, because that will make all the difference to our motivation for living for him. The first time he came, he came in humility. The first time he came, probably a dozen or two at the most people saw his birth. And those were mainly shepherds. But when he comes again, he will come again in glory. Every eye will see him. Every knee will bow. I was thinking about how the, the best way I could get this across and I often find it helpful to look uh, at particularly chapters 4 and 5 of the book of Revelation and some of the chanting and some of the hymns directed to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll just read some of those out now. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And then particularly focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seal. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. 
and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. How amazing is that worship of the Lord Jesus Christ as he sat receiving the praises of the living creatures and the elders and the multitudes in glory. Jesus is coming. Our future as his people is secure. Our future indeed is glorious. There isn't anything in this life which won't be worth sacrificing for the glory that awaits us. But how does this truth impact our lives in the week ahead? A week ago, the England football team had glory in their grasp, but fell at the last hurdle. Their heroic adventure ended in penalties and extra time. No glory for them. Heroic failures at best. But our future doesn't rely on a penalty shootout. Christ is victorious. He has ascended to the Father's right hand and he will bring his people home. When we appear, we will be like him. Paul wants us to lift our eyes this morning, fix our gaze on the one who has secured our salvation and will deliver us into his kingdom. Fix your gaze on him this morning. He redeems and he perfects. But look back with me at verse 16 of chapter 1. We didn't have this read to us. Uh, it sneaks in there in chapter 1. It's Paul speaking of the false teachers in Crete. And Paul tells us that they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Wow, just let that sink in a minute. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. These were people who were claiming to be Christians, to be claiming to be followers of Jesus, and yet their lives gave them away. May that be none of us here this morning. And this is the opposite of what Paul is encouraging the church to be like. He doesn't want them to follow the false teachers. Paul is determined that the Christians should be adorning, not denying God by their works. Are you adorning or denying this morning? 
Have you been living your life in this week in such a way that brings the gospel into disrepute? We wouldn't be warned about something that wasn't a danger. And if that's you this morning, I would encourage you to your knees before God and to speak to me or one of the elders afterwards so they can provide the support that you need to root out the sin in your life. But our God is a gracious God. He's a forgiving God. He has redeemed us and he will bring us to glory. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. Thank him for all he's done in redeeming us. Praise him for all that's to come and pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to live a life which brings him pleasure. This morning, Jesus is king. He may have been born as a baby in a stable. He may have died a death in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. But Jesus is king. And let's worship and serve him as such. Does Paul promise that living this kind of life that pleases God will be easy? No, he doesn't. But he promises the coming again of the Lord Jesus Christ as the guarantee that he will complete his work on earth. He will bring his people to his heavenly kingdom. A repeated element of the false teaching in the New Testament is that it will make your life easier or look more impressive. It will bring you joy and happiness and money now. It's attractive. It has to be because it's a false gospel. But the gospel of Jesus makes none of these promises. Jesus promises suffering, loss and pain now, but glory ever after. Are you waiting eagerly for the glorious appearing of our Saviour on that great day? Are you meditating on that glory? How big does Jesus feel to you this morning? So Paul exhorts us this morning to renounce ungodliness because Christ gave himself for us. He humbled himself and he redeemed us from the power of sin through his death on the cross in our place. And to live a godly life in this present age because that's why he saved us. Not because we deserved it, but because he wants a people who live lives that demonstrate his goodness to the whole of mankind. That others might see our good deeds and bow the knee to our saviour in anticipation of his coming glory when he will restore all things and usher in his perfect kingdom and love of peace. The stakes, brothers and sisters, couldn't be higher. Let's pray.
Lord God and Heavenly Father, we praise you this morning that you have done for us all that you've done for us in Jesus. We thank you that in him you revealed your grace to us, that he gave himself for us and redeemed us from the pit of our own sinfulness. And we thank you that this great salvation is still available through faith in your son, Jesus. May our lives adorn the gospel, we pray. We pray and confess that so often we fail you. We pray for your forgiveness and perseverance as we run the race before us, keeping us free from sin. Give us all this morning a clear vision of your coming glory, of your certain victory, and of the full revelation of your kingdom, which words cannot describe. Amen. <laughs>